Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 11th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, Prince Charles delivered the Queen's speech in place of his mother on behalf of the British government, setting out legislation it plans to introduce in the coming months. There was no mention in the speech of the Northern Ireland Protocol, but a phone call between the Taoiseach and the British Prime Minister has left Micheál Martin worried that Boris Johnson might just pull the plug and and unilaterally tear the agreement up. Documents commit to the introduction of an Irish Language Act and an Irish Commissioner in the North and there was much anticipation over how the British government will proceed with plans for giving a blanket amnesty to people who committed crimes during the Troubles. The continued success and integrity of the whole of the United Kingdom is of paramount importance to Her Majesty's government including the internal economic bonds between all of its parts. Her Majesty's Government will prioritise support for the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and its institutions, including through legislation to address the legacy of the past. No blanket amnesty, but what exactly is intended in the British legislation remains unclear. We do welcome the moves made by the British Government in that respect. I think they've listened to the parties in Northern Ireland and critically the victims' groups, but we'll want to see more detail in relation to uh, what uh, specifically uh, they intend to propose. But I think, again, there is no room for unilateralism in such matters. These, these are issues that were agreed by everybody as far back as 2010 um, between the British and Irish government and the Northern Ireland parties. And I've met with many victims' groups and, and, and they do want closure. They do not want amnesties. Taoiseach Michal Martin responding uh, to that British government announcement in the Dáil yesterday. Let's speak uh, to Margaret Irwin of uh, the Justice for the Forgotten Group. Good morning to you, Margaret, and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, the Taoiseach saying yesterday he wants more detail on this. Uh, I think you're in a similar position. You've described this announcement as vague. Well, it's extremely vague, of course. There are very few notes given out alongside of the Queen's speech delivered by Prince Charles yesterday in the uh, in, in the British Parliament. Um, it, it actually, I mean, obviously the caveat is that it is very vague and we don't have the details. But from what little we do know, it actually uh, strikes us as being worse than the original. 
because the um, it's going to the the mechanism is going to be called an independent commission for reconciliation and information recovery. Now you'll note that the word the word that is missing there is investigative or investigation unit. Uh, there is no mention of that. And um, it, it seems to us that it's absolutely designed to uh, continue to protect state actors from prosecution. Um, they say that uh, if they come forward, they will be granted an amnesty. Mm. If they come forward and tell the truth, if you like. Now, this, of course, would be their version of the truth. Mm. And who's going if they, if they cooperate? If no, yeah. If, yeah, if they cooperate, if mm. there's no, um, if there's no investigative mechanism in place, who is going to adjudicate or scrutinise the information they give? For example, if a British soldier um, who killed um, many years ago made a statement at the time, and usually these were self-serving statements and nothing was done about it, and not, nothing further was done about it. Is this just going to be what's presented, that uh, they fear they were going to be shot at, for example, something like that? Well, who's going to scrutinise that if there's no investigative unit? Yeah, I don't know. And who will decide uh, if somebody is deserving of immunity? Uh, on what basis yeah. will that? What, what's the criteria for it? I mean, uh, from what I'm reading, they're saying that the decisions would be made on a case-by-case basis, but I, I can't see any criteria for it. Was it a, a war crime? Did somebody act uh, off their own bat? Uh, or were they under orders from the British government? or Absolutely. So yeah. on and so forth. It's just, a, I think it's just another cynical exercise, I'm afraid, in avoiding an examination of what really happened, uh, to avoid dealing with the past in any meaningful way. Mm. And do you believe that this will result in people who are guilty of war crimes walking free? Absolutely, yes. I can't see how how anything else could happen. Um, is, it des- is it being designed to do that? I mean, I think you would have said that about the original proposal, that it was designed to get British soldiers off, uh, specifically. Yes, well, that's what it appears to. As, as I said at the start, um, of course, we don't have all the detail. The mm. detail is very scant. So until we can see what the legislation is that is being proposed, we can't give any definitive answer. Obviously, as you as you're aware, we're just going on what's available, the information that's available mm. at the moment. Okay, and uh, any idea of what this independent commission for reconciliation and information recovery will do, or how it will operate? Uh, will it uh, be similar? For example, would you imagine that it could be similar to the Truth Commission in South Africa, uh, which uh, was a form of restorative justice, if you like, where people uh, committed crimes, admitted to those crimes, and, and faced uh, the victims? Yeah, well, I've absolutely no idea because obviously we don't have the detail as yet. So uh, I really have no idea. Is that something uh, just, you'd like? Sorry? Is that something that you'd like to see? Well, I, I don't think uh, the Truth Commission in South Africa was all that successful in the end. But, no. uh, I mean, what we would like to see, in fact, is the Stormont House Agreement being implemented. Mm. And uh, what was planned there, of course, was to have a historical investigations unit, which would uh, carry out thorough investigations into all the cases. Mm. Uh, that's what we would like to see. But, um, you know, the British have, have reneged on that uh, unilaterally. 
So as as Michal Martin said in your clip there, you know, it they can't do these things unilaterally. And um, I don't, he did also say that uh, he thinks that um, they've listened to the victims. I don't think they have. I really don't believe that they have listened to uh, the victims groups at all in, in uh, promoting this idea. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, there was that caveat, obviously, uh, that uh, yes. it's toned down, uh, but uh, what it means, I, I think the Taoiseach uh, left uh, judgment open to, uh, on that. I'm reading he did. this. He did indeed, yes, yeah, I yeah. agree. I, I'm reading this morning that civil cases uh, that are already underway will continue, that there will be a bar, though, on new civil claims and that inquests that are underway will proceed, but like that, uh, 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 you won't open new uh, inquests. I haven't seen that, to be perfectly honest. Mm, OK, I'm reading that in the Irish Times uh, this morning. We also uh, quote a spokesperson for Boris Johnson uh, who said that the UK government had listened listened and responded to the concerns of political parties, victims and survivors groups. Uh, But it it really is very scant at the same time. Uh, I'm sure that thing about uh, existing civil cases and existing inquests uh, continuing is something that you would welcome because that would have uh, stopped under the original proposal, wouldn't it? Well, yes. If that is if that is true, we'd certainly welcome that um, continue that investigations that are underway. Well, of course, it doesn't say investigations, does it? It says civil cases and inquests. I think you yeah. said. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. Well, obviously, that's important for many people, um, and it's important for us in terms of civil case. Uh, but also, of course, what would be very important is that the uh, Operation Denton case under John Boucher would continue. Mm. But it doesn't mention investigations, I think, does it? Not that I've seen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so we just, I suppose, we just have to wait and see. Uh, what what are, what are the outcome of this is, or whether legislation is going to be brought to Parliament, uh, we've no idea when that's going to happen. Of course, mm. uh, will it happen in this oil or in this um, parliamentary session? Mm. We mm. don't know. Right. If um, this is in breach of the Stormont uh, Agreement, uh, which, as you say, uh, would have required an historical investigations unit to be set up and uh, for all historical cases uh, to be looked at or to be decided on uh, as to whether they were worth while investigating. Um, if it is in breach of that agreement, what's your understanding of that, Margaret? What does that mean in terms of the bigger picture? What does it mean in terms of the Good Friday Agreement, as you say, uh, and the Taoiseach said it there in that clip uh, that the British government can't act unilaterally like that. They can't act on their own like that. They have to do it with uh, the agreement of the Irish government and the political parties. Uh, so if they do act unilaterally on their own like that, what does it mean? Well, I mean, it would mean they're acting in very bad faith, but I mean, they've done that in other areas. So, yeah. you know, there's nothing new in that, really. I mean, they're... they're, they're probably going to act unilaterally in relation to the protocol, for example, mm. uh, which is, uh, you know, which is an agreement they signed up to, an international agreement mm. they signed up to with the EU. Yeah, but that calls so, into question the Good Friday Agreement, and I'm just wondering uh, if this would call into question the Good Friday Agreement as well. Well, I, I mean, it's certainly not going to, to help the Good Friday Agreement, is it? I mean, it's just, uh, it's just appalling bad faith by by the British government uh, in in this case and also in the in the case of the the protocol. Mm. And what have you been hearing from people since Prince Charles made uh, 
that uh, announcement. Uh, I'm sure none of us really understood what he was saying, uh, but it was interpreted for us uh, by those who know uh, that it means it'll be a toned down version of that amnesty. Well, I mean, I've only been speaking to my colleagues in the Patronoukin Centre and, uh, you know, we've had a discussion around this yesterday and, and, and we're in agreement with, with uh, uh, the remarks that I have made to you this morning. Mm. I haven't heard from, from any of our family members because obviously they wouldn't have had any of the detail at all apart from what was said uh, by Prince Charles yesterday. So uh, we will be uh, keeping them up to date now in the coming days. And obviously we have uh, the Dublin Monaghan, our anniversary next Tuesday, the 17th of May. It'll be the 48th anniversary. So obviously we will be meeting the families on that day. Uh, And that is the point that the British government have been making over this uh, last couple of years, uh, that when you talk about crimes that are are 50 years old or or thereabouts, uh, it's next to impossible to get justice because those who carried out those crimes are dead or very old uh, and memories uh, have uh, waned and people have forgotten uh, there there isn't the evidence and so on. Is there any argument in that? uh, No, I don't think so because I think they don't know whether there's evidence if investigations haven't been done. That's for a start. And uh, while I fully agree that it's um, most unlikely that uh, prosecutions would arise from these cases. I think the possibility has to be left open. You cannot close the door in a democracy on on the possibility of justice being served. Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, uh, there are not issues that will ever be forgotten uh, because of uh, people like you. And uh, you'll certainly put it uh, to the front of our minds on Tuesday of next week on the 48th anniversary. That's... Um, Hard to believe, Margaret, uh, but I'm sure we'll be speaking to you then and we'll certainly hear from you then, Margaret. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning, as always. Thank you, Margaret. Margaret Irwin of uh, the Justice for the Forgotten Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the VAT rate uh, for tourism and hospitality was reduced to 9% as part of government measures uh, to give support to the industry to get through COVID. And that yesterday, the government announced uh, that that rate would continue for an additional six months and would be available to the sector up to the 28th of February next year. So what I'm insisting on you, uh, T-Shirt, is that you engage with employers and to demand of them that the payback for this VAT decrease or continuing uh, with this VAT 9% rate is that they engage with the joint labour committees and ensure that their workers are properly paid because we cannot stand over a situation where you are gifting employers a 9% VAT rate but they still stand over a system of poverty pay. That's Labour's Aon O'Reardon putting that point to the Taoiseach Micheál Martin yesterday. Retention of the 9% VAT rate until February 2023 is a good thing for workers and for employers in the hospitality sector because it's a sector that took a huge hit during COVID-19, you know, over two successive years. And certainly in terms of GLCs and in terms of proper pay, uh, would, would accept fully your, your point about ensuring good quality pay in that sector as well. Um, and that will be necessary because of shortages, by the way, too, in, in, in that sector. But more importantly, I think it, it, it's a basic... Uh, way to proceed in terms of uh, and operate 
is to give good quality paying conditions. That's the Taoiseach Michal Martin. Adrian Cummins is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. He's on the line. A very good morning to you, Adrian, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You've welcomed this. I think you'd like it to be extended past uh, the end of February next year for that matter. Uh, but is it actually necessary? Uh, good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. Yes, it is necessary. Uh, let's just break this down now for your listeners. <clears throat> the 9% VAT rate was due to increase at the end of August by 50% to 13.5%. Um, now, that has been extended until the end of February. Uh, we will be going back to the government uh, over the next number of months uh, ahead of the budget to make the, to, to try and ensure that this VAT rate is continued right into to the end of 2023 and beyond. Because when you look at Ireland versus the EU countries, 9% is the average rate across the EU. If we go to 13.5%, we'll have the second highest uh, VAT rate for hospitality after Denmark. So if we're trying to, to recover and rebuild hospitality post-COVID, mm. and also while you have a war in Ukraine, which is uh, contributing to energy prices gone up by 30 to 50%, by input costs, for example, for chicken, for beef, for pork, for whatever we buy into our businesses, gone up to between 30 and 50 to 60%. That's not what we're, we're saying to the government is we have rocky road ahead, choppy waters economically for our industry, and that 9% VAT rate is critical for the viability and sustainability of our industry. And if you don't have viable businesses, those businesses go out of business. And then who loses? The taxpayer loses and also the employees and workers in those businesses because they won't have a job. Okay, but that is one of the questions. Are restaurants viable and do they need this VAT rate in order to remain viable? Because people will tell you they know how to charge. Uh, It's not uncommon to see steaks on menus for €30. It'll be difficult to find a a restaurant where you can get a a bottle of wine for less than €25 or or €30. And people will also tell you, you can't get a table in a restaurant these days. Well, let me just answer all of your questions there. I'll deal with the one with you can't get a table in restaurants. And let's just see what businesses are open seven days a week, five days a week, four days a week. Because I can assure you, those businesses that are only open four and five days a week, not open seven days, is because we don't have enough staff. Because we've had we've lost forty thousand staff throughout COVID. Where have they gone to? They've gone to other sectors, or they've gone back to their home countries, which is normally outside the European Union, and they now have to reapply for visas and work permits to get back into into Ireland to start working again. So that's one part of it. The second part is you will see price inflation. You can use the same thing with regards to price inflation in shops for for retail, price inflation for fuel, price inflation for all other commodities in the country. For example, if you go into your supermarket and you bought a steak in a supermarket today, I'm sure the price of that steak is, or that chicken or that pork is more than what you paid for uh, a number of months ago because what's happening in Ukraine is a knock-on effect across the world food market and energy market at the moment. 
Okay, uh, and people will recognise uh, that you had a, a very hard time uh, and were closed for a good portion of uh, the two years of lockdown and reopening in uh, this country. Uh, but Aon O'Reardon there in uh, that point he was making to the Taoiseach in the Dáil yesterday, he was talking about the terms and conditions of uh, employees. Is that why uh, restaurants were employing foreign nationals? Was it that Irish people won't do the jobs because of the poor paying conditions? Well, uh, when before COVID, we had nearly 240,000 people working in, in hospitality. I think uh, the, the, the research or the, the statistics back in 2019 and 20, that's about 20% of our workforce was non-Irish nationals working in our industry. Um, so when you talk about pay and conditions, I'm taking it that it is all parts of the economy we talk about pay and conditions, all parts of society about how we treat workers. So let, let me just talk, talk to you about this. Mm. Each worker should be treated equally. It doesn't matter whether the worker is a, is a nurse in a hospital or a guard in the front line dealing with crime or a restaurant uh, waiter waitress. They all should... They all... Uh, are protected by employment laws and employment rights. Um, that's the law of the land. And we have nearly 30 pieces of legislation on our statute books to protect workers' rights. And any worker that feels aggrieved has a process that can go through to, to, um, to, 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 to bring an, an agreement, agreement to the WRC or wherever they need to, need to bring it to. With regard to the level of pay, you will see now, because it's simple economics, supply and demand. We've seen substantial pay inflation within hospitality in order to attract new staff into our industry. Um, you know, I've seen pay inflation of between 10, 15, 20% in, cert- in certain skilled areas of our, of our sector. You just look at jobs.ie or look at any of the, the jobs portal and, and reference back then to 2019, 2020. So pay inflation is part of that. Mm. Uh, and we live in a free market. These businesses, if, if a staff member feels they can get more pay in another, another business down the road, they will move. That is what is happening in the economy at the moment. All right. Uh, and what kind of rates are you talking about? Are you talking about going from the minimum wage of 10.50 to the living wage of uh, 12.90? Uh, I'm not sure if I have those figures exactly right, but they're around that, aren't they? Well, let me, let, there is an argument about the living wage. The living wage has not been set by any um, state state body. The living wage is is a suggestion by the trade union movement that this is where you should we should move to as a country and a society. And others, have, the Vincentian Partnership, and there is a commitment in the program for government uh, to make the living wage the minimum wage. Correct, and we have what is called which you on. In, we have the Low Pay Commission, which is a government agency which reviews all of all of the minimum wage levels, and that review is going on at the moment. And at some stage, the government will ask, more than likely, the Low Pay Commission to look at what is uh, right and proper for a mm. living wage, if that is. But this recommendation of twelve fourteen that is coming from a non-statutory uh, organisation. Uh, and I feel that we need to have bring economic perspective to this, and we need to look at what is viable for businesses to pay uh, in in a society 
at the moment. OK, well, the Labour Party... The Labour Party, we heard there a moment ago from Aon O'Reardon, who was uh, raising this point. The Labour Party uh, are, are to bring a motion to the Dáil looking for a 25% increase in the minimum wage over five years, I, I think. Does that uh, make economic sense to you? I don't. To tell you, give you a straight answer, I don't know, because who knew that we would have a war in Ukraine uh, this year? Who knew that we would have uh, price inflation within energy of 30 to 40 to 50%? In, 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 in that. So who knows what is going to happen in five years' time. Mm. I think when you look at these things, you need to look at them in the here and now. And I do, it, it should, when we make, when, 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 when our politicians go ahead with certain policies, there needs to be evidence-based and economically sound. So I would, I would ask for the government to look at this in an evidence-based, economically sound uh, scenario as, a, as opposed to Talking figures out of the air and saying, but in five years' time we need to get to why. I think we need to look at this in the round. We need to, and I do agree that we need to look at it, uh, and I'm not opposed to that, but we need to have it economically and evidence-based at the end of the day. Okay, and as part of that evidence, uh, do you have to take into account what tips are given to people? Uh, because uh, it's one being, thing being paid ten fifty or twelve ninety or, or whatever it is, uh, but you could be taking out twice as much uh, as that uh, an hour in tips. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. And that point uh, hasn't been brought forward by certain quarters of society, predominantly the trade union movement. And we will have, and we support as a, tr- as a trade representative body, the legislation is coming through the door at the moment. And actually, I hope that they would speed it up around tips and gratuities legislation where if a staff member is given a, is given a tip or a gratuity, they get it. And that all employers would, would, be, uh, would have to sign up to this. Um, and we've had um, a very like a, a minute number of employers out of 20,000 businesses in the country uh, in hospitality, a very minute uh, amount of cars that have not done it, not done done so. And I feel that this, that piece of legislation will be another piece of legislation to protect uh, empl- employees. And the sooner we bring that through the door, the better. All right. Uh, are you hearing from your members any complaints about prices? Uh, you were saying, like uh, the €30 Euro steak, if you go into the supermarket, uh, you're going to pay more for a steak. And people are giving out about supermarket prices. But are, are restaurant uh, goers giving out about restaurant prices? Because it can be very expensive to go out now. Well, it depends on who you talk to. And I'm not trying to be yeah. quite the question. Um, I, I was at a briefing last week where, um, an economic briefing where uh, allegedly, we, uh, and this is from a senior economist, that each, every adult in this country has built up savings of up to nearly €70,000 over COVID. Now, I couldn't believe that figure, but that is what the, the, the statistics are showing. There is a lot of money in, in society at the moment. And I do feel that we have seen massive price and cost inflation coming into our industry. So what happens when you have cost inflation? Well, businesses will make up their own minds what they will do because... It's not for me to tell a business what way they should price their price their, uh, their, their their menu, but they will look at it in a, on a on a case by case basis, and they will see well, is it viable to have this this dish on on a menu, or will I as a business look at increasing that price because I feel it's a last leader for me. 
So that's, that is what is happening in, in, in the market at the moment. Businesses are businesses. They have to make mm. profit at the end of the day. If they're not, they go to business. So that's just that you're seeing, what you're now seeing is massive inflation in our industry uh, and massive inflation in the economy. I think it's nearly 6.5%. Uh, and it's not just in Ireland. It's right across the European Union. I've seen price inflation in other countries of up to 78%. So we're not, we're not on our own here. Mm. Um, the, the, Ireland has always been a high-cost destination for tourism because we pay well above what others are paying for, for on wages in, say, like Mediterranean countries. That's why when you go abroad, people say, well, I got X uh, for a, I paid mm. X for my, my meal in, in Spain or Portugal, and how come I can't pay it? I cannot, how come I'm paying more in Ireland? Well, it's because they're a low-cost, uh, business, business yeah. well that, that as you say has always been the case but it hasn't always been the case with uh, the northern European countries uh, but it became the case in the 1990s and the 2000s uh, where it became expensive for people from Germany or Scandinavia uh, or some of uh, those countries uh, to holiday in this country because of prices well that's true but, and, but when you look at you know, tourism to certain countries. We are a tourist. We, we, we depend on tourism. We're the envy of certain European countries, the amount of tourists that we get from certain markets, predominantly the North, North America and predominantly from the UK. But, you know, when you look at Sweden, Norway, Finland, are they tourism destinations? No, they're not. Uh, but they are very high-cost destinations to go to. Uh, so they're not dependent on tourism is what I'm trying to say here. Ireland is. Uh, so we need it is it is a balancing act. We need to be competitive, uh, and we're trying our we are trying our best as, as as a sector at the moment. Coming out of one of the best, one of the biggest economic uh, hits that the sector has ever got in this country uh, in hospitality. So you know we're trying to find our feet. We have a huge amount of debt built up over the last two years that has been warehoused. The businesses are trying to pay that back as well, and that's for another day. But, but at the moment, uh, you know, we are trying to make sure that we provide good quality service uh, and try and make a margin at the end of the day to, to, to pay everything that we have to pay. OK, somebody in touch with me saying that they were asked €38 Euro for a steak, which is a lot of money, I think. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, though, Adrian. And thank you indeed thank you for much. joining us on the programme this morning. That was Geraldine. Uh, that was Adrian Cummins, uh, CEO of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. It was Geraldine who said she paid €38 Euro for a steak. Uh, she said, Michael, I, I do agree that the hospitality sector has taken a big hit because of COVID. However, I think that the price increases in some establishments is going to scare customers away forever. I was out recently and a normal steak was priced at 38 euro. Granted, you got two sides with the steak, uh, but still very costly, I felt. My God, I, I, yeah, and I'm not sure that I'd be able to justify that in my own mind. Uh, and therein lies uh, the dilemma, I suppose, for all of us and for the industry. When you hear stories of uh, people who are finding it hard to make ends meet, ends meet uh, who are deciding whether to eat or heat, uh, to go to the supermarket and buy... Uh, own products, own brand products or or not uh, so that they can put on the heat or vice versa Uh, and then to think of paying €38 for a steak there is kind of uh, a a dilemma in that. Uh, Thanks uh, for your call to the programme today Geraldine
A couple of texts that have come to us already this morning. Margaret in touch uh, pointing out that the Queen's speech is not written by her. It's written by the British government and she reads it out but she didn't even read this one before it went to Parliament going by reports on news bulletins. It seems the DUP would rather go back than forward. What are they afraid of? Is it that they might be treated the way they treated the other side for decades? Hmm, I don't know, Margaret, uh, but uh, Jim Wells will be back on the programme a little bit later on today and maybe we'll ask him if that's the case. John Navin was in touch with us and uh, John says uh, that the Ukrainians' entry into the Eurovision Song Contest is tipped to win, even before the contest is being held, with all of the politicians encroaching in the contest in recent years. The result, he says, is a foregone conclusion. So why bother entering in the first place? God, when is the Eurovision Song Contest on? I didn't. I, I thought they gave that up years ago. Uh, it, it, but jo- it must be on. Uh, John is talking about that. There's a lot of talk about it, apparently, and they reckon that the Ukrainians are going to win it. He says, in the present political climate, the Ukrainian entry, entry could sing My Lovely Horse and still walk away with a record number of votes. Well, I would be very surprised if they didn't. <laughs> what a great song that was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, somebody else in touch with us about the cost of a steak. €38. Euro. Uh, Michael, my daughter paid €38 euro for a steak on First Communion Day last Saturday in a local hostelry close to Drogheda. Thank you indeed uh, for telling us. Uh, I guess I don't get out too often. <laughs> I haven't seen uh, those prices, uh, but uh, thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, one uh, steak uh, in a, a certain restaurant uh, costs €50. Euro. Uh, that's uh, Margaret NRD. Uh, thanks, Margaret. Uh, you did name the restaurant. I'm not going to name them. I know the restaurant that you're talking about and it is a, a very, very big steak, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And they always had very expensive steaks on the menus for people who could eat uh, a dinner that uh, most people would consider is big enough for four or five people. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, if you have been in touch with us today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Jacinta's in Tully Allen. She's wondering, did she do something wrong in another life? Uh, she says she tries to keep her grocery shopping uh, to below €50. Euro, and uh, to do that, she goes to four different shops to get different items because she knows that certain things are cheaper in certain shops than they are in others. So she goes around and gets the cheapest products in each of the shops, tries to keep it below €50 euro every week. And she's appalled to think that somebody would pay €38 for a steak. Uh, She says, as I say, did I do something wrong in another life? Uh, Sean in Dublin 9 says, Tesco luxury toilet rolls, they were €2.75 last week. The price today is €5. My God, that's nearly 100% of an increase. uh, And no wonder people are giving out about the increase in prices. I'm sure the supermarkets themselves are giving out about the increase in prices that they're being asked to pay for these products. This is what you call inflation. And uh, they reckon that it's running at around 8%. Martin in Drogheda. Uh, says, excuse me, you feel sorry for anyone in business, especially the hospitality sector because of COVID and now rising costs. And he says he knows of some restaurants who operated as takeaways during the pandemic and uh, they still haven't opened up yet. Um, Excuse me, to full dining. Maybe they never will because of the overheads. 
Yeah, well, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that as well, Martin. Thank you uh, for taking the time to give us a call this morning. Now, let's hear about a, a local issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday. Taoiseach, why is it taking so long for ambulance to arrive? Some cases have taken between one and two hours. And what happened in a recent uh, football match in Dundalk, County Loud, last weekend, when a young footballer had a spinal injury and had to wait nearly two hours for the ambulance to arrive. My, my question, Taoiseach, is... Uh, and also it's from the Minister of Health that nobody appears to be accountable for the process management side and there needs to be a more accountability, accountability when it comes to waiting time. Katishok, who is accountable? Perhaps I'll look, I'll engage with the National Ambulance Service in relation to the case and alert them to the points that you've raised. Katishok saying he'll uh, have that looked into. Uh, another issue that caught a, a lot of attention in the Dáil yesterday uh, was government plans uh, to help out developers. Tishuk, I want to ask you about your government's plan to pay big developers up to €120,000 per each apartment they build. Um, this has people shaking their heads in disbelief. It essentially means you propose to give €450 million Euros of taxpayers' money to a few developers. That's astonishing. But what's more astonishing is that there will be no cut in the price of those apartments that these developers will put on the market for anything between 400,000 and 600,000 euros, way beyond the reach of ordinary workers and families. This is a transfer of millions of taxpayers' money to developers with no public benefit. And at a time, Taoiseach, when uh, local authorities and housing bodies are crying out for funding. I want to ask you, how do you justify a misguided policy like this? Well, let's hear the response. There has been a well-documented viability gap between the delivery cost of eligible apartments and the open market sale price of the apartments, which is preventing a lot of apartments from being built. And there is a very significant issue here in the cities um, in in particular, uh, and that we want to uh, enable affordability that's the Taoiseach Michal Martin. He was responding there to Mary Lou MacDonald and before that he was responding to independent TD for Loud at Eastmead, Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, as uh, Margaret said earlier on in her text uh, to us, uh, the Queen's speech is not written by the Queen, obviously. Uh, It's read out by the Queen or Prince Charles on behalf uh, yesterday uh, for the British government. It's uh, the British government's theatrics, uh, the pomp and ceremony in announcing legislation that it has uh, planned to introduce in the coming months. And yesterday, the British government announced that it will introduce an Identity and Language Northern Ireland Bill, which will create a new Office of Identity and Cultural Expression and two new commissioners, an Irish language commissioner and a commissioner who will enhance and develop the language, arts and literature of the Ulster Scots and Ulster British tradition in Northern Ireland. Here's the crunch, perhaps. Uh, they're to be appointed, these two commissioners, by the First and Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, of course, uh, it may be some time before there is a first and deputy first minister uh, taking up seats in Northern Ireland. Uh, let's uh, speak now to Julian Despan, who is uh, the Secretary General of Conran Gaelica. A very good morning to you, Julian, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Your reaction to paraphrase, uh, I think, is you'll believe it when you see it. Exactly. Yeah, good talk to you, Michael. Um, uh, basically, we've been waiting, I suppose, in 2006 for the British government to live up to their promise to introduce an Irish language legislation. Um, and what they did in 2006 when they promised this at St. Andrews was they gave it back to the uh, the Assembly itself to introduce 
and there was a, a lot of rigmarole over the years, you know, in the Assembly about the Irish language legislation. And basically, um, after a lot of debate and a lot of pro- protests and everything else, they finally decided to go ahead and do the Irish Language Act as part of the New Decade New Approach Agreement there, you know, two years ago. Um, and then the DUP pulled out of that promise that they gave. So um, at the time, Brandon Lewis, um, last summer, he said, well, do you know what? They're not going to do it here. We're going to do it in Westminster and I'm going to do it by October. And then by Oct- October came and he still hadn't done it either. Um, and while it's been mentioned in the Queen's speech now, as you mentioned there, or the, 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 the Prince's speech that it was yesterday, um, <laughs> you know, while it was mentioned there yesterday, uh, it wasn't mentioned actually uh, verbally, it was, you know, but it was part of the, the documentation that went along with the speech. Um, you know, to be honest, we, we've had so many promises from the British government to do with the Irish language legislation that, you know, as you say, we'll, we'll believe it when we see it. Um, and I think that's a, a fair point for, the, I suppose, the Irish language community, especially in the North, who, yeah. you know, want to see their language recognised, want to see the language used more, want to see it, you know, um, there's 7,000 students in Irish medium education in the North, and they want to see that their their, their language is, you know, part of, of, of the area that they live in. Yeah, well, I, I think what will happen, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just looking at how this is presented to us, uh, that they will introduce a, a bill which would allow... Uh, for the two commissioners and one of them being an Irish language commissioner but as it's being proposed there's not a hope in hell of it actually happening Uh, because as things stand uh, following on from uh, the elections uh, we're going to have Michelle O'Neill as the First Minister and Geoffrey Donaldson uh, perhaps as the Deputy First Minister certainly a a DUP MLA Uh, that's it if they can come to an agreement to make that happen and that seems almost impossible but if they did that this would require Geoffrey Donaldson to sign off on this they're to be appointed by the first and deputy first minister yeah um, no, but there is one technical change that they're actually going to bring in into Westminster that wasn't part of the NDA in, in, in a agreement and to be honest it's going to be fairly beneficial why we won't we don't okay. we're not especially looking forward to the the, the British um, Secretary of State um, being in, involved in the implementation of Irish language legislation in the North, there is a stipulation there that if it's not done by the Office of First and Deputy First Minister, that the Secretary of State can stand, uh, step in then. So there is a mechanism there now to make sure that these things can actually be happen, that the, the appointments can happen. And this is something, again, that Brandon Lewis promised when he promised in, in the summer last year that he would bring in the station. He also said that he would make sure that the commissioners were appointed as well. So, you know, we'll have to see it to believe mm-hmm. it. But as you say, mm-hmm. I can't see the DUP agreeing to it in Stormont. So it probably will be back to the Westminster government and how long that will take them to make a decision. You know, these things could be delayed for, for a long time. OK, well, that's that's very interesting, though, Julian, because I can't see the DUP being in Stormont for some time to come. <laughs> so well, that's... That, that's fair enough. And actually, do you know what? That may be, if that was the case, you might actually get the language commissioners uh, or the two commissioners appointed a lot quicker because, uh, you know, it, it it doesn't have to wait for the, I think they, they should be able to go ahead once the legislation's gone through. Um, mm. You know, it could be the case that the um, Secretary of State could go ahead then and appoint commissioners as well. But we'll have to see. We'll have to cross that bridge when we get to it, but um, we'll see what happens. All right. Well, that'll be very interesting, uh, I think, for the DUP uh, constituency, people who vote for the DUP, because they'll be weighing up in their heads what is more important. Is the protocol or who is First Minister, especially when you take into account that uh, it's a position of equal importance? 
or the Irish Language Act because I think there would probably be some opposition amongst uh, DUP voters uh, which is why the DUP is taking this position uh, but if that's what, what, what ends up happening uh, you could argue that the DUP will be shooting itself in the foot. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose uh, what we try to do with the Irish language in the north when we're promoting is, is try to get the point across that the language is there for all. And there's many um, of unionist or um, Protestant, um, you know, tradition that, that are actually learning the language as well. And obviously the language itself has a um, um, a rich history of involvement of um, uh, Protestants who are very to the fore in terms of revival and everything else, you know. So, mm. you know, letting the language continue to be politicised is not something we want to do. We want to you know, take it out of that political sphere and, and have it as something that all can uh, I, and all can use and all can take part in. I understand, you know. but you're, you're not going to win that battle with some. Uh, we'll be speaking to a, a man in a moment uh, who uh, will argue that the DUP are not unionist enough for him and Jim Wells undoubtedly will ask, why don't we have a, a Polish language act? Well, I suppose the you know the language of the country or the language where you know um, you know where our place names what what this the, the rich heritage and everything we have in this country comes from the Irish language. You know, the Poland will look after their own language. You know, who's going to look after the Irish language if not in Ireland, if not the Irish? You know, so I think it makes sense that we will be looking after the language. And you know, when you look at the polls across the country and people are interested in the language, you know, there are there's a huge amount of people out there that are very very interested and want to protect it, want to promote it in the future, and want to have that opportunity to use the language. What we find with people who in the north, um, you know, when when we have a, a, sh- a roadshow that goes into schools, uh, especially schools say of a Protestant background, um, and what we find is that maybe they've never been um, introduced to the language, and we can do that through place names. It's very much something that they have a huge interest in, or even the names of um, our own names, you know, as well. There's a lot. And that has to do with the Irish language in them as well. Um, and it does really open their eyes and, and they say, well, look, I never had the opportunity before and that's what we need to do into the future to create this awareness, give them the opportunity and that will depoliticise the language. And I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, <laughs> you know, but it is something that we need to strive towards, I think. Yeah, no, I know. I'd say if uh, Jim Wells heard you there, he'd have taken offence with <laughs> probably every second word that you said there, including uh, the North and that uh, he's in Ireland and things like that. But... You know, that's part of uh, the problem, uh, as I'm sure you very well know, and that's uh, the kind of uh, barrier that you've been trying to break down. Um, there's hope, if nothing else. You'll believe it when you see it, uh, and maybe uh, because of uh, the political situation in Northern Ireland, you might actually see it, Julian. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's Julian Despan, Secretary-General of Conrad Gaelica. Michael Reed on LMFM. If I'm right in saying uh, that Jim Wells wouldn't have been too happy had he heard uh, Julian Despan of Conor and the Gaelica a few moments ago talk uh, about where he lives as the North or that an Irish Language Act uh, would be appropriate instead of a Polish Language Act uh, because of uh, the Irish heritage, uh, history and language of all of us in Ireland... Uh, well, he certainly would have uh, been upset had he heard what the Taoiseach had to say yesterday in the doll about the elections. And one very interesting feature of the Assembly campaign uh, was the fact that every party but one ended up running a campaign based on the cost of living and health crisis and the need for the Assembly to intervene and to help people. Uh, the one exception to that ended up failing to add a single seat in the Assembly, uh, in the TUV. 
Uh, and any attempt now, I believe, to apply different rationales for a vote after the event must be, um, must be um, resisted. That's me, Hal Martin. Let's speak to, to Jim Wells, a political commentator these days, member of the TUV, which the Taoiseach mentioned, and former LA for MLA for the DUP. Good morning, Jim. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, did the strategy backfire? <laughs> the TUV trembled its vote. Yes, one seat though. Uh, yeah, it was cool that that's just the the problem with PRs that were, were not transfer friendly. Um, the TUV got one seat on 65,000 votes. The Alliance got double that number of votes and got 17 seats. And that shows you how transfers work. Uh, clearly, it's a record vote for the party. Uh, it was disappointing, I have to say, that that didn't translate into seats. We seem to be knocking on the door of the last seat in quite a few constituencies. But at the, at the end of the day, Michael, the significance of this election was that unionism lost three seats and nationalism lost four all of the euphoria about the Sinn Féin uh, apparent success. Remember, Sinn Féin went in with 27 seats and came out with 27 seats. They made no gains whatsoever. But of course, they have merged as the largest single party. And under the, the rules of the Golden Hound Act, technically speaking, they should take the position of first minister, which I hope they don't. But uh, as I predicted on your program a week ago, I said that the Alliance would do well, and they did. That the TUV would increase its vote. Uh, that the SDLP would be lucky to tread water, and they lost four seats, uh, and that Sinn Féin's vote would consolidate. So I was right at everything apart from the fact that the TUV didn't translate its very large vote into seats. Yeah, but what's going to happen now? Well, there'll be absolutely nothing's going to happen until the issue of the protocol is sorted out. Mm. But why not? I, I mean, as the Taoiseach said, all of the other parties, bar the TUV, uh, asked for votes uh, on bread and butter issues. They did, but I have to say, uh, Michael, that they all said the same thing on bread and butter issues. They wanted more money spent in the health service. They wanted help with eating costs and all that. And there really wasn't much difference to anybody. The issue that was most uh, difficult in this election was, well, two, actually. Uh, the, the protocol and who was going to become First Minister. And there's no doubt that the large increase in the Sinn Féin vote was nothing to do with eating costs or hospitals. It was a desire amongst uh, Republicans to take the, the title of First Minister. And that's why the SDLP did so badly. Mm. And their leader said that people uh, lent their votes to Sinn Féin to try and achieve the goal of, of, of Michelle O'Neill becoming First Minister. But that was the prominent issue. I mean, there was nobody dashing to vote for Sinn Féin because of their okay. policy. Were you disappointed that there was no mention of uh, the protocol in the Queen's speech? Absolutely. But of course, remember, the, the, the Queen's speech is the basic set of le- proposed legislation. It mm. can be added to uh, and frequently has been. So there's nothing to stop the government stepping in and taking the decision to scrap the protocol uh, through parliamentary legislation, even if it's not in the Queen's speech. So okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't no, no. <clears throat> well, I'm not going to argue with that. It sounds uh, from what the Taoiseach was saying yesterday as though you may very well be right. We might listen to a, a little bit more of Michal Martin speaking in the Dáil yesterday after a phone call with the British Prime Minister. This morning I spoke to the British Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, we had a frank uh, and honest exchange on the blockages to progress. Uh, and I reiterated my view uh, that what is needed is a proper and professional intensification uh, of the European Union and United Kingdom discussions regarding uh, implementation um, of the protocol. 
I set out in very clear terms uh, my serious concerns about any unilateral action um, at this time. I shared my view that this would be the wrong approach. It would be destabilising in Northern Ireland uh, and would further erode trust. I also made the point to the Prime Minister that responsibility for ensuring the safeguarding and implementation of the Good Friday Agreement is the joint responsibility of the United Kingdom and the Irish Government. There is no place for unilateralism uh, in this role. Um, and I believe, and I've been a long-term believer in the view, uh, that the, the progress in Northern Ireland is achieved only when the UK and Irish Government are working closely together uh, in a common cause. We both agreed um, that it was important that the Assembly and the Executive uh, would be re-established and get up and running. How do you translate that, Jim Wells? Well, if, if the price for getting the Assembly up and running is the further implementation of the protocol, I'm afraid that's wishful thinking. On behalf of Michael Martin, mm. the reality is that that is the main sticking point. The, the DUP uh, wants to be returned with only, on this occasion, uh, 25 MLAs. Mm. Uh, we're still the second largest party. We're still the, 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 still the voice of unionism. And they have made it absolutely clear that they will not, under any circumstances, be returning to normality as long as the protocol remains. Our, our one MLA, uh, Jim Ellis, has obviously pledged to that as well. Uh, and I mean, he, he, uh, the t talks about the, 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 um, the Good Friday Agreement. We believe that the protocol effectively tore up the Good Friday Agreement because it did not have the consent of the union's community. It was a major constitutional change uh, and it had never been voted on by, the, by the, the, the people of Northern Ireland. And therefore, our view is that there has to be a complete overhaul of the present situation. Mm. And uh, Geoffrey Donald's made it clear that uh, he's not going back until it's dealt with and the TV will hold his feet to the fire on that issue. It sounds to me like Michal Martin is very concerned that Boris Johnson is going to pull the plug and rip up uh, the protocol agreement. Uh, is that the way you hear it uh, when he says uh, that there is no place uh, for unilateralism? Uh, it sounds as though uh, the British Prime Minister, the British government may act unilaterally, act on their own without agreement from the European Union uh, and rip up the agreement. And when the Taoiseach talks about all of the reasons for not doing that, uh, I'm wondering if uh, the British Prime Minister was arguing the opposite. I'd like to think he was. I'd like to think he was warning the Taoiseach that the only solution to this is that we simply um, tear up what has been agreed. Because remember, Sony deals with 6% of the trade. 6% of the trade that comes from the rest of the United Kingdom into Northern Ireland eventually reaches the European Union. That can be dealt with in our ways. I mean, 94% of it's not, not an issue. The other thing that's worth mentioning, uh, Michael, is that that 6% is EU compliant because the vast bulk of it's also going to France, Germany, etc. So there's really no issue here. We're endangering the constitutional position of Northern Ireland for safeguards which aren't really uh, required. And I think we could gradually phase out that 6% over a five-year period and ensure that there's nothing leaking into the European Union. So therefore, there are ways of dealing with this, but, but I do ask this point. Would the Taoiseach tolerate a situation where the border checks were on the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic? He wouldn't, because that would be a major threat to United Ireland. So therefore, you know, you can't have it both ways. Nationalists would be burning the barricades if the border was on the island of Ireland. So why should unions tolerate a border between us and the rest of the United Kingdom? And that's an irrefutable argument. Mm. They just wouldn't accept it. So, uh, you know, there's 
24 weeks has been set aside for negotiations on this issue. If that doesn't succeed, then after six months we have another election. Uh, well, the politicians Therefore, of Northern Ireland, well, the DUP uh, uh, and the unionist politicians of Northern Ireland are failing the people of Northern Ireland to leave them without a, a government for another six months. Well, do you really think that the unionist parties in Northern Ireland are going to go back to business as normal? when this sort of Damocles, the protocol, is hanging over their necks. Well, when, well when, it, when, when it's uh, an agreement uh, that the British government made with the support of the DUP, I think it's probably reasonable to accept that they so, would. And then when it comes to the post of First and Deputy First Minister, uh, I think people outside of Northern Ireland are wondering why political parties are playing silly beggars when there's people who are finding it very hard to make ends meet. Well, first of all... Uh, the reality is that the protocol is far more of a threat than the, to Northern Ireland than any of these other issues. I mean, we've been told it's costing us £850 million a year in extra costs. The Hollagers are saying it's costing 27% extra to bring goods into Northern Ireland and other parts of the United Kingdom. But crucially, the long-term constitutional position in Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom is severely threatened by this instrument. It has to be removed and if it was unilaterally removed, it really had a very little impact on the Irish Republic in terms of trading. But, of course, it would mean the chance of United Ireland would be greatly diminished and that's the fear of uh, the, the, the TDs in the Irish Republic is that they see this as a, a vehicle uh, to trundle us into some form of constitutional change, which we simply are not going to have. And I think Geoffrey Donaldson uh, would have the support of the TV and the public generally and say, look, this is so important. It has to be dealt with now. And the only leverage that unionists have is their ability to participate in the government of Northern Ireland. Once we go back in, that that pressure is off and the protocol is here to stay. So I, I think he's absolutely right. Um, and uh, certainly the TUV will be supporting him on that. Mm, I don't know. I think uh, restoring a border on the island of Ireland uh, could make the case for some uh, of reuniting Ireland. Well, again, as I've often said to you, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, no one wants to die on Tuesday. And as what's very clear in the last election, despite all the euphoria, is that there's a majority of people voted for unionist parties mm. as opposed to nationalist parties. And all of the surveys would show that a significant minority of the Catholic population, anything between 19 and 20, maybe even 30 percent, will vote to remain within the United Kingdom. So... But we're not going to uh, go down what's called the boiling frog <laughs> type mm. situation where we gradually uh, find ourselves being uh, draw- drawn into United Ireland by stealth. And the protocol is very much that. It is a major threat to our constitutional position for a tiny proportion of our trade. Mm. And that's not all. That's, that, we're not going to accept that. Which your government uh, agreed to with your support. Uh, and now no, 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 hang on. Like, like the only thing you said this morning, the DUP and all of unionism totally repudiated the protocol. The protocol was signed behind our backs in October uh, 2019 mm. in Cheshire. By a government that was in a confidence and supply agreement with the DUP. The protocol was never in a confidence and supply uh, agreement. No, the government had a confidence and supply agreement with the DUP and then negotiated and agreed the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yes, over the heads of unionism at Westminster, over the mm, heads of the Northern yes. Assembly. Mm, yes. We were never consulted about the deal between Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson, ever. No, I don't think it was between Leo Varadkar. I think. Uh, it, actually, it actually was, funny enough, because uh, he was Chief Suspect at the time. 
Okay, but it's a deal with the European Union. Yes, but what I'm saying to you is that the people of Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Assembly were not asked their views on this absolutely crucial issue. If the border was drawn down the island of Ireland... Why, do you not want to be... Do, do you not want to be part of Britain? Do you not, absolutely. Do, do, do absolutely. you not want the British government to make international agreements on your behalf? Yes, but... The, but the, that's the what they did. The that, that's agreement. what they did. And the government at the time had the confidence uh, of the DUP. If there was that agreement was made on the island of Ireland, you'd expect the people of the Irish Republic to be consulted. We were not consulted about the protocol. And the, the, the 1998 Act makes it absolutely clear that any major constitutional change to the people of Northern Ireland must be subject to consultation. Mm. That deal was done in Cheshire, uh, it was produced, and that was the first any of us knew about it. Okay. Uh, as we were discussing with Conrad Gaelic earlier on, uh, the Queen's speech did make provision for an Irish language uh, bill, uh, also uh, for uh, uh, a commissioner who would deal with Ulster Scots and the Ulster British tradition in Northern Ireland. Uh, but in terms of the Irish language commissioner, uh, the bill says, or, or the uh, documents yesterday say, that that would have to be uh, approved and appointed by the First and Deputy First Minister if uh, the DUP, in this case, doesn't take up uh, the post of Deputy First Minister. Uh, do you think Brandon Lewis will do the job? Sorry, I missed that last time. Will, will Brandon Lewis do the job? Well, if uh, if the First and Deputy First Minister are not there, then de facto he has the power to do that. Mm. I see this as totally unnecessary because the last person in Northern Ireland who spoke Irish only died out in 1958. Uh, we don't have anybody in Northern Ireland who speaks mm-hmm. Irish as their first and only language. We have 70,000 police people who mm-hmm. deserve an awful lot more support than the Irish language. Mm-hmm. And what I make it absolutely clear, the Irish language has been weaponized and abused by Sinn Féin and Milton Republicans for their own devious ends. It's not a general ex- general expression of culture. But is, 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 isn't the DUP being very silly, saying that they couldn't take up the post of Deputy First Minister when it's a post that has equal importance to the post of First Minister? Uh, they're just names. And that for the sake of a name, they can't take up this position, which would mean that they wouldn't be able to block the appointment of an Irish commissioner if that's what you want to do. Because the main issue, the elephant in the room is the protocol. And all else is subservient to that. And therefore, once we accept and tug our forelocks and go into government and appoint the Deputy First Minister, then all leverage to deal with the protocol has gone. And that's absolutely crucial. And you in the Irish Republic would not tolerate that either. You would not tolerate a major constitutional decision change to the vision of the people of the Irish Republic uh, and just tug, you know, just agree to it and walk in. You wouldn't do that. Okay, we leave it there. There's uh, some difficult days ahead, I think uh, you'll agree. Uh, And uh, God knows how uh, it will conclude. But thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Jim Wells, political commentator, member nowadays of the TUV and former MLA for the DUP. Michael Reed on LMFM. Quite a, a number of people telling us uh, that they've been asked €38 Euro for a steak in restaurants. Uh, not the case with one listener texting who says, uh, go to the supermarket, four cans of stout, €8 Euro steak uh, for 
uh, more than uh, you'd want. Uh, €6 euro noose buds, €4 euro onions and mushrooms for €2. Euro. Add that all up to €20. Euro. Hit a hot pan while drinking the stout, all in for a night. No taxi, no babysitter. Lovely jubbly, says our caller. Somebody else reckons uh, the price of car insurance will go up this year as well. Certainly hope that's not the case, but... God, the way things are going. Uh, Maria says she went into a butcher's to get a pound of steak. Uh, they said it was six euro. She normally is charged under a fiver. Uh, she complained and the butcher said he'd leave it at five euro. But he, he took some out and she went to another butcher. They weighed it and said it was just a half pound. She says, I'm not miserable with money, but I'm sickened over that. That's unfair. I was fuming. Normally, we'd get four burgers out of a pound of mince and we only got two burgers out of the half pound. I wouldn't go back uh, and I used to go to that shop regularly. Thanks uh, for sharing that with us as well. Uh, Somebody else uh, in touch following the interview with Jim Wells saying, poor Jim Wells, maybe he just doesn't know how good he has it. Access to Europe, Irish passports, UK passports, no restrictions and they voted for Brexit. Paddy Duffy says, if you want uh, United Ireland, uh, that he's come to the opinion that all nationalists on this island should just leave it to the DUP and the TUV to look after their reunification of the country. Thank you indeed, Paddy, for that. Now, let's go to Dundalk and this story that you've been hearing on LMFM's news about money uh, lenders outside of post offices uh, demanding payment uh, from people when they come out with social welfare payments or their children's welfare allowance. Uh, Sinn Féin Councillor Kevin Meenan is on the line. A very good morning to you, Kevin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, I take it this has got to do with the stuff we were talking about there where everything is the price of everything is going through the roof uh, and people are, are taking drastic action and, and looking for money uh, from money lenders uh, in a way that they normally wouldn't. Uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's, it's been, money lending has always been around. I've always known to be around in some type of small fashion. But in the last probably year or two years, I've seen it more, it's been more prevalent. And uh, from different situations, people who have either caught themselves in trouble through various different ways do. And uh, to turn to money lenders, some cases it works out fine. They don't they don't miss the payments and they pay the pay the money off. In some cases, miss the payments and that's where the extortionate rates kick in. And it's, if somebody has to pay them a hundred pound a week and they miss a week, there's three hundred added on. <laughs> and in many cases, some people borrow a thousand and end up paying five thousand back. Right. Some severe cases. And and again, common practice is they would uh, see people that, that on the post office children's allowance day. I witnessed it myself firsthand. I would mm. I had been dealing with a person who who had alerted me the fact that I happened to be in the facility and said, oh, "I'm going down to pay off my thing." And I just ha- happened to hover around and watch it happen myself. And uh, but it, it you go to any probably uh, post office on a Monday morning, where you'll see young dads collecting their dole and passing it over to somebody, or you'll see children's allowance day at the post office. You'll see people coming there. And you'll be able to see them passing money into a passing car or whatever, right. and uh, they sit there. And it, it, it's been going on. It's, it's getting to, and also then, with some people I'm aware of who have said, "No, I'm not paying any more back. I've paid more than enough back." Yeah. And the debt is then handed on to somebody else, or the threat of it being handed on to somebody else who'd be quite violent. And I've had a few cases in the last few days of of certain individuals who have been named as being somebody who's bought the debt and is going to continue to pursue to, to uh, get the money. And, and we had the case there. So, so one gang gives it over to another gang? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, after. Uh, and that's when the heavies are brought in, in other that's words. That's when the heavies are yeah. brought in. And, and that's only a new enough feature because most people had been paying 
Uh, and it doesn't last really well of how cases where people can't pay anymore and this threat has been issued where there are certain individuals mm. have said, oh, we're passing it down to them. They'd, they'd be individuals I would know and, and, and be well known within, within the area. And, uh, and at that stage, it, it, it's pay or else, in other words. It's pay or else, yeah. yeah. And, mm. and as I say, we've had uh, we've had cases where people have, have had the hand on money over. We've had... Uh, Cases where people have no money for electricity or gas, or one, mm. before Christmas we were dealing with a family. And fairness, we've we've, we've made the council aware of this because what happens is then some of them end up who say in council rent end up in the rear and they're brought in. So I would go in and explain to them mm. to make sure that they explain properly and entirely the case that they have. So and in fairness, the council have been quite good. They're well they're well aware of the, the individuals involved as well, and uh, and have been working. Greatly with the families concerned, some families, and some some are individuals, some are families with kids. They're all different nature, and and I can't say for sure exactly why people would go, but the, people aren't entirely blameless in this either. Do I mean some cases it's, it's through uh, addiction or something like that in terms of of, of tracking the money or getting the end of the money, or it's it's just maybe mismanaging bills. But the situation we have is not tenable at the, at the minute right. and that's why I raised it yesterday and, and I think it needs an approach we need, need to stamp it out it used to be good when you had credit unions and, and they were more accessible still they were local and uh, people could go in there but that's just not an option for people now at the moment Right uh, and what about the violence uh, are people getting a hiding or are they getting threatened uh, or Yeah getting threatened I've, I'm not aware of anyone who's now who has came to any harm as of yet that, that I'm aware of and I'm only I'm only dealing with uh, probably 10 or 12 cases in the last six or seven months. I presume there's people out there who who have had uh, violence inflicted on them because they haven't paid or they've been either roughed up or intimidated to pay over the money. Yeah. And uh, so I, think I'm, I'm, I would safely say that has happened. And are these drug dealers, are they? No, well, I, I would... The, the people I know who are doing it all would be connected to drug dealers. So amongst right. ourselves, talking amongst community workers, we would imagine that uh, they're obviously the people who are lending it don't have, wouldn't have had money in the past. So seem to be maybe out of fronting for something. Right. So and then and there's probably a way talking- of, of getting the cash back at rather than having it stashed in somebody's house into a bank account. If you're circulating the money back out that way, and, and the, the people who are taking out the loans have nothing to do with drugs. Uh, they're no, b- no, borrowing no, money to pay some, for heating. Yeah. Or bills or communion yeah, could, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's it's various reasons are borrowed. Some some probably have borrowed in, in terms of of to or maybe pay another dealer off or things like that. But some have borrowed yeah because they just simply haven't got enough money to to make the bills and they think they can pay it back the following week. They miss a week and then there is is an extortionate rate handed on. So I was dealing with somebody who was paying a hundred a week. They missed one week, three hundred added on. Do you mean then? Then, you're, yeah. then you're, you're then that's when that's when it will keep occurring because you can't make that yeah. payments back. How and much was the original loan? On. Uh, one person I dealt with had a loan of nine hundred and reckons it paid back over five thousand mm. over a two-year period. Yeah, uh, and uh, the Gardaí have been advising uh, people to make contact uh, and not to take out these loans. Um, but yeah, they're inviting people to go to MABS mm. or talk to themselves confidentially. And uh, I was urging people to, to, to talk to the guards because at some stage, there's a lot, it's going to have to come to a head. You can't just have this system where people just offer money to other people and then who are vulnerable at that time or, or in a bad period in their life and then just heap misery upon misery on them after that. 
and uh, we we need to look at a way uh, to, uh, to the guards, local authorities, and maps, maybe all linking them together to look at how we can do this. So we don't, if people are in in trouble or about to get trouble, that they do not turn to money lenders, because that's the worst option possible. Okay. Uh, it's certainly not a good option uh, and hopefully people will hear uh, the advice that you're giving there and indeed the consequences of borrowing a 1000 and paying back 5000 or uh, these threats uh, that uh, could very well be realised. Kevin, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Thank Councillor in Louth, Kevin Meenan. Now, thanks uh, to Pat in Mid-Louth who was on the phone to us after the interview with Jim Wells saying he, he doesn't know what Jim Wells and unionists are complaining about. They talk about Northern Ireland but it is the six counties that was taken over by force against the majority of people in Ireland at the time. The Unionists are now on the side and uh, they can't take it but uh, they uh, beg your pardon, they're now on the slide uh, but and, and they can't take that but it is uh, will just have to be the case. The Catholics will be in the majority and they will have to accept it to accept democracy. Somebody else uh, saying, Michael, could you ask Jim Wells, did he ever see the trade that travels between Belfast and the south of Ireland? That uh, what's up message that came to us from Jerry. Thanks, uh, Jerry, for that. And thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, was in uh, the Shannon yesterday evening and he had this message uh, for people who had their births registered illegally. The stigma experienced by unmarried mothers and their children was fundamentally wrong. The shame was not theirs. It was ours and it remains our shame. In the case of children affected by illegal birth registration, What happened was a historic wrong with deep and enduring impacts. Those who were knowingly involved in the illegal registration of births committed a grave offence which robbed children of their identity and their right to an accurate birth registration. I can only imagine the deep hurt and anguish that people must have experienced on learning of their illegal birth registration on learning that the foundations upon which their entire identity is based are false. For this, I'm truly sorry, and I apologise on behalf of the government. I deeply regret the anguish experienced by those who've been affected by illegal birth registration. It's well recognised that apologies carry little weight unless backed by practical responses to remedy the rights violation in question. As such, I can only assure those affected that the state is actively implementing measures aimed at addressing their situation in a comprehensive manner. One of those measures uh, was uh, being debated in uh, the Shannon yesterday, the Birth Information and Tracing Bill. However, nothing in the measures can undo the past and fully right the wrongs that these people have experienced. I deeply regret the pain and distress that this has caused them and again, I offer my sincere apology as a minister of the government and on behalf of the government for this. That's the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, speaking in the Shannon. Susan Lohan, co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance, joins us. Good morning to you, Susan, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, Perhaps you'd like to react to what we've just been listening to. Yeah, well, well, first of all, 
despite what the minister would have us believe, that was not a state apology. That was a personal and government apology. It's a very different animal to what we would normally expect for an issue of this uh, severity. And what struck all of us yesterday was that the minister, you know, has, has rushed to issue this personal and government apology to those people who were illegally adopted. But yet all of the issues he describes, the, 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 the fracture of people's identity, the, the denial of their information, um, that is something that affects anybody who is forcibly adopted in Ireland, which probably you know, is in the realm of 95% of adopted people. And the elephant in the room, particularly in that clip that you you played about, you know, the grave offence of illegal registration robbed children of their identity and their right to an accurate birth uh, registration. The elephant in the room is that it robbed those illegally adopted, all adoption did, um, of the right to be brought up, loved and nurtured by their family of origin. So we had this bizarre focus on the clerical accuracy side of things, which, you know, comes very much further down the line. The first, the most fundamental issue for people is the fracture to their identity and then discover and then wanting to know, well, where is my family? Are my relatives alive? Do I have siblings? Are my parents alive? And we didn't get that yesterday. We also did not get um, any acknowledgement from the minister that the state has known about these practices since the 1950s, because in the early 60s, they pursued Mary Keating, the infamous midwife linked to the St. Rita's um, nursing home in South Dublin. Now, she was Instead of being prosecuted for illegal adoptions, she was only prosecuted for the lesser offence of falsifying birth registrations. She just got a fine. She received a fine. Uh, she was allowed to continue running her nursing home. St. Patrick's Guild were implicated in her operation there because they were the beneficiary of most of the babies that were illegally adopted. And they continued uncensored, un uninvestigated by any, any state agency, including the Adoption Board, who was the uh, regulatory body for adoption in Ireland and whose job it was to monitor and regulate adoption agencies. So this, you know, it was so insulting to people yesterday. And, and I must commend Senator Erin McGreehan. You know, she too referenced the fact that you know, why on earth was this apology being issued ahead of a fairly routine um, discussion of the birth information and tracing bill? It was at committee stage and, you know, they were supposed to have a debate on the bill before it makes its way into the doll again. So it was ill-timed. It was insincere because the minister didn't apologise for the the items or the issues on which the government are, are on the hook. Um, and people are hurt all over again. Gosh. Uh, hope you'll uh, forgive me for saying that the minister sounded heartfelt. He stressed his sincerity, uh, and it seems remarkable that he got it so wrong. Uh, you've described yeah. it as insulting and insincere. How, yeah. di- how did he get it so wrong? Uh, was it misguided on his part or what do you think? Well, I think the minister 
Now, whilst as, as, a, as a human, a fellow human, you know, he, he like the rest of us, we would all, to, to anybody who's caught up in this illegal sc- adoption scandal, and one of my best friends is, you know, we would all say, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. So on a human level, they are the words that we all use. But he wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't about his, you know, empathy with, with the victims. And I think he confused the two. But he is determined to get his birth information and tracing bill through, despite all of the um, very, uh, widely accepted reservations about the bill that come not just from campaigners like ourselves, but from survivors generally. From uh, We've cross-party support on the opposition side. And there's the fact that Tusla is involved when we've heard over, you know, repeatedly over the past few days that Tusla thoroughly mishandled the um, the imparting of this information to uh, most of the most of the victims. Um, it, you know, I know one particular case where um, a person met up with Tusla in mm-hmm. a in a local hotel. Um, she had no idea really why they were they were meeting with her and uh, they dropped the bombshell that she'd been. She was one of those who'd been illegally adopted. She had no idea she had been adopted, and yet they refused to give her any information. So, you know, they have proven themselves to be um, wholly uh, inexperienced, underqualified, under-resourced, and frankly disinterested. In this. Right. Um, they are not the people to to run this service as Roderick O'Gorman envisages. Um, you know, under the terms of his bill. Um, I, I, I can't help but wonder, Susan, um, and this is genuinely a, a question, if uh, there was an attempt here on the part of the government uh, that people would accept this apology uh, in lieu of a state apology, because a state mm. apology is a very serious thing uh, because it's not just sorry about that. Uh, it's when the state takes responsibility for a wrong that was done to people and it is an admission of guilt and with that uh, acceptance of responsibility comes liability and consequently redress. Yes, yes. And and they are running scared from that and have done uh, for two decades now because that's when Adoption you know, Adoption Rights Alliance started um, its campaigning work in 2001 when Mary Hanson wants to criminalise us for contacting our natural parents. But if you look back at the Commissioner of Investigation into mother and baby and county homes, um, the, the word adoption, I think, appears, you know, a handful of times in that report. So again, avoidance of the elephant in the room, which was the forced adoption industry um, in Ireland and the forced incarceration of mothers, and the forcible separation of babies and children from their mothers. Um, that has never been addressed. And uh, instead, the Commission of Investigation focused only on, on the sort of the minutiae of the living conditions within those institutions. Okay. So thankfully, uh, Ireland's special rapporteur on child protection, Professor Conor O'Malley, in his report published in, 2000, in March, just gone, um, which was, you know, a state response to illegal adoptions, he pointed out, well, actually, we need a state response to adoptions full stop. Um, 
And it's it's though the government is hoping that the public, <laughs> bizarrely, mm. I think they hope that the survivors will skip, will miss the fact that yeah, we've addressed the mother and baby homes, we've addressed the illegal adoptions, but we're talking about a cohort of people in excess of 120,000 affected by the forced adoption issue. Okay, and well, this is far from over, Susan. Unfortunately, no, our, time, indeed, our, our, indeed. Ti- our time has run out, Susan. I, I'm sorry to say, uh, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed. Uh, well, thank you, Michael, for your interest as always. Thank you indeed, Good Susan Lohan, co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance, concluding our programme for today. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.